Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So, down over the hill in this direction uh, is a a playground, which is usually teeming with children. And you can just imagine, of course, right now it's summertime, so it's quiet. But typically, on the days where it's nice enough to be out, you can imagine the, the clamor of the children on there, the chatter, the noise, the screaming, the yelling, the chasing... The uh, running and playing on the monkey bars, the, the slide and so on, and then the swings. And of course, if you've got, that, if you've got more than three people together, typically you're going to have a bully anyway. So there's a bully that shows up at the swing set and takes his turn at swing when he didn't stand in line. The nerdy little kid with the glasses and the cowlick in his hair tells bully, you need to get to the back of the line and wait your turn. Well, bully continues to swing looks back at the, the nerdy kid and says, who says so? Who says so? That's the question. This is the question we're going to look at today of who says so. And we'll expound on that a bit, but it's going to boil down to the bully in the playground's question. Who says so? This bully, he's going to do well in our postmodern uh, society we live in. For he will be conditioned um, by that society to live by his own opinions, subject, really, to no one. And his opinions must be valid or just as valid as the next person's. So it's the, it's, it's the way we operate. doesn't matter what those opinions are, but they are just as valid as the person next to him. He'll be taught to doubt everything that he's taught by anyone. He's going to be taught to submit his ideas to no authority. In order to survive, he will learn to doubt. For if he raises no doubts, he will not be heard or respected in our modern day. In a book called uh, Things That Cannot Be Shaken by Scott Oliphant and Rod Mays, they write... Perhaps no demographic in the history of our country has been fed a daily diet so heavy in tolerance and inclusiveness and so light in truth as these newer generations have. To accept the ultimate authority of any person, document, or institution is to be bigoted, intolerant, unloving, and self-righteous. So we've been conditioned to create our own existence. We, as old people in our society, are being conditioned to do this very same thing. With with the development of technology and such, the younger generations have been steeped in this since they were born. Our individualism and our choices, one of the things that uh, Becky and I noticed in Rwanda, is the culture is different. The roads are crazy. But why are the roads crazy? It's because the culture is different. They think they have everything there to share. That's not the way we operate. Um, Now, I I didn't drive while we were there. I would just hang out in the car, and I did well. 
I didn't get antsy about anything. And there were plenty of times. We saw, we saw many opportunities for all kinds of problems. We saw, however, no accidents. And they had, being a great big traffic circle, there are no lines. I mean, hard, seldom do you see lines on any roads. Being a big traffic circle, if we have traffic circles, which we have very few, they're going to have lines in them so that you know where your lane is. So that if you get out of your lane, you can at least blame somebody. We know who to blame. There, it's all there to share. So if you enter from this distance over here, and you're only going to make it a quarter of the way around the circle, and you got to cross through all those lanes, no big deal. Everybody, it's just a give and take. Now, it's a close give and take, that if I were driving, I would be very nervous. But it has something to do with the way they think about it. They think through things. So, you know, so I haven't driven for two weeks or whatever. We get back, and I get in the uh, car, and I'm driving. I'm not far from the airport, and I'm up in Washington, D.C. area, which is enough to drive a fellow crazy anyway. But already you start getting a little antsy because other people are interfering in your lane. This is my lane. I think this is evident in, our, in how we're wired when we're driving. I'm conditioned that I, you know, Roger Miller, the king of the road, he's saying, that's, that's me. When I'm driving, I'm the king of the road. You know, when you're driving, you're the king of the queen, whatever. You're, you want everybody out of your way. And, of course, it ma- makes me mad when they're going too slow, especially if they're in the left lane out on the interstate. You're like, I ought to have the opportunity to get a speeding ticket if I want it. Get out of the way. But we, we are, so we are all conditioned in this way anyway. But with this modern technology, these younger generations, um, they've been growing up since birth to be able to select what they watch, what they hear to their own liking. So they make their play, they listen to what they want, when they want, how they want, where they want. They're not being infiltrated with other ideas with opposing thoughts, with opposing even music. You know, one of the th- things that I've always found interesting is how on the, when you're listening to the radio, you know, back, that's what we all still probably listen to, but I'm telling you, these kids run around with these things and they've, they've figured out what they're going to listen to. When we listen to the radio, we don't have any control over it. People that work for Don have control over that. And they're going to tell us what we're listening to. And you know, you know how that goes. You've heard songs, they come on the radio, and you're like, this song drives me nuts. I do not like this song. Of course, this kind of happens in our playlist as we do church as well. You're like, I don't like this song. Well, then for long, you can't not, you can't not, you just got to keep singing the song. And for long, you love that song. So there's some sort of conditioning that was able to happen, which this newer generation is not happening. And then by what they watch, um, I found it interesting, some time ago there was a group of young people and somebody from there reported that nobody in that group, and I mean young like uh, uh, mid I think they were lower 20s, lower 20s to like in the 30s. So they're not real young people. And nobody in that group knew what Friends, the TV show Friends, nobody knew what it was. Now... We never watched, I never, I don't know, I didn't watch Friends when it was on in popular, but then, you know, you're sitting around watching the TV and there it comes on, and then you flip the channel, and it's on that channel, it's on that channel, it's like everywhere. But if you don't have a TV, if you're in control of what you watch, when you watch it, and how you watch it, where you watch it, on your phone, your iPad, your computer, you cater what you're watching to your very own liking. And so, you're not... You're not hearing news reports that you didn't want to hear. You're not seeing television shows, even glimpses of them that you didn't want to see. 
Unless a friend says, you've got to watch this series on Netflix. Then you might get it and, and, and uh, watch it. And, and I, th- those seem like small things. And they are small things, but they make a huge difference then on how one operates in society. So they, the, we, we are all like this, but this younger generation particularly are being conditioned to create their own reality in the way that they want it to be. And that's where they want to live. That's where they do live. So if you're being conditioned by this way, by the thoughts that you've had, by the songs that you wanted to hear, by the truth that you're allowing into you, how do you react with competing ideas? How do you respond when ideas come your way that don't fit in with your life experience, such as biblical truth? How would you do that? How would you receive it? And there's some biblical truth that is easy enough to accept. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But, but if you were saying, okay, I've been conditioned this way. I'm in a church. I call myself a Christian. But now I'm going to college. And I'm around competing ideas. And the professor is talking about the, uh, the, the authority and the inspiration of the Koran, the Book of Mormon, and so on and so on. What about those things, and how do they compare with the Bible? Why is the Bible superior to those in any way? How can, what do I do with any of this? Why should I believe the Bible's claims at all compared to these? Well, the central issue that we're looking at is truth and authority. But this problem is not a new one, and I, I know I've just bashed the younger generations here among us, but in 1970, listen to these lyrics... Of course, you know, y'all probably start singing along or something. <laughs> a, young, a young man of 17 in Sunday school being taught the golden rule. And by the time another year has gone around, it may be his turn to lay his life down. Can you blame the voice of youth for asking, what is truth? Of course, that's Johnny Cash, because that's, my, that's what's in my head, it's what I know. But it connected with a large number of young people in that time frame who, too, were trying to determine their existence and define it with something. And he helped them along with this song in their quest for defining their identity. And this is in the midst of an unpopular uh, war or police movement, or whatever that was called, that went on for way too long, killed too many people, had too many riots. And it was also in the midst of the sexual revolution. But of course, this question goes way back before 1970. This is Pilate's question. Pilate said, what is truth? Every generation, every person has had to ask, to whom... Or what should I ultimately submit? It is the more sophisticated version of the conversation down in the playground of who says so. So first we're going to look at cultures, our culture's prevailing views for truth, which have been somewhat already described. We're going to cover two things and two... two uh, ways that people arrive at truth, and these apply to us. 
we've been conditioned by these things, and we are they. So I want to hear this from our own ears, about our own hearts, about our own interests, about our own trusts, first. And if it's true with us, who are here, to listen to God's Word, I'm here to tell you these things are true with absolutely everybody else you meet. Whether they're right outside this church, or they're somebody you work with, or somebody you live with, somebody that um, is a friend, the person at the grocery store checkout line, these things describe how people are arriving at truth in, two, in these two different ways. But they're and very popular. First one is if it feels good. And the technical term for that is empiricism. And this is obtaining knowledge through the senses, through your experiences. So if you have right experiences, if you have good experiences, you'll have a right and good understanding of truth. You will be able to determine what truth is based on your experiences and based on what you know or feel more so. That's what we're told. And, and this is how we act this stuff out, too. You'll, um, these experiences are both emotional and physical. So if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it must be right. Feelings and emotions are shaped by the music we listen to, the television uh, shows we watch, the movies, etc., the arts, those kinds of things. But this kind of, um, uh, those, those sorts of media create an alluring sense of authority because they've painted a picture of a story that you may want to be a part of. And it may create discomfort in your own life that you're not a part of such a story. So this may give you something to live into, so to speak. But it has its faults. As good as those stories are, and they can capture your imagination, and they actually do promote ideas and worldviews through these things. But captivating as they may be, they are promoting another human's emotions or ideals. So to buy into the message that they are selling only feels good for a while because it can only go as deep as the individual who produced it or painted it or wrote it or sang it. It's not lasting. We need something deeper. But we are attracted to the things that appeals to our senses and our sense to self. If we could have less conflict with others or less conflict within ourselves, surely this could make us happy. As we're looking for uh, good things and good experiences, lots of times we're driven by what will make us happy. What will bring us peace as we understand it. Less conflict. So we look to remedies like more money, more time, more autonomy, you know, less restrictions, more of me, less of the world, perhaps a total makeover, maybe a wardrobe makeover, maybe more shopping. Surely, if these things can bring us less conflict or make us feel good, they give us truth. You just think of all the things that tempt your heart. You know, John Callan said that 
human heart is a factory of idols. Do we create idols out of everything? We create idols out of good things. But think in your own heart what you run after. Think of, think of the general population of Parkersburg. What do people run after? What is it, where do you see people running to find happiness, to, to find less conflict in their life, to solve this kind of gaping hole in their heart that only Christ can fill, ultimately? But these things are what they're going for, for meaning, for purpose, for truth and authority. So if the first category we're looking at is empiricism, which is about if it feels good, so it's about your feelings and emotions and experiences. The second one is, I think, therefore. I think, therefore, I am. We're said to be thinking beings. This is rationalism. Rationalism is knowledge based on reasoning or right thinking. Philosophy, science, and mathematics have laid the groundwork for this. The intellect is highly valued. The expert is someone with education credentials. Academia and the sciences have been asking questions designed to undermine religion and paint those who hold faith as ignorant and naive, kind of like unthinking people. And you, that, sh- that probably resonates with you. You've probably been in conversations with super intelligent people who have no faith at all. And just in their presence, you feel intimidated. And there's some light and darkness things going on there. There's, there's real reason for that. But their hope and their faith is in what they know, what they understand. But it's not just them. I'm saying that we do this too. You know, and this thing called Christian, somebody talked about uh, people calling themselves Christians and and of course, biblically speaking, that's a great term, and it's a term we should use. But my response is, I'm like, well, I, I want to talk about being a believer. Well, to be a Christian is to be a believer. I know, but culturally, that's not the way it's understood. You, when I, if you're going to be a faither, a believer, that's, that's like that, a different level than just a categorical checkbox Christian. So there are many people who call themselves Christians who would fit in this category very much so. There are churches that fit in this category. I mean, like large churches, not like an individual church we're going to go downtown and see it. There are large churches spread all over that are really run by both these things, empiricism as well as rationalism. It's about how we think. And to look at the Bible as like an inspirational thing to read is okay. But absolute authority? you got to be kidding me. You non-thinking little person. No way. To hold the Bible's authority is thought to be intolerant, which is the mark of the simple-minded or the unintelligent. In either one of these worldviews, you can't make sense of the Bible. When you're looking at the Bible through the lens of these worldviews, how do you explain the miracles you see? Why, how can it make any sense that God would enable a man to tap the water with his cane, a stick, and the water separates in the sea, and the whole nation crosses on dry land, only so that, you know, when they get through, he relates it, and then, boom, the nation that was following him, the army that's following him is now drowned. That doesn't make any sense. 
And if that kind of thing didn't make any sense, surely before that, in the creation of man, that whole myth you talk about, the story you talk about, about that man and woman with that fruit, that cannot make sense. We don't see this kind of thing in our day. It doesn't make any sense to me. I can't, I can't rationalize that through these lenses I'm looking at the world with. If I can't do those things, I certainly can't do many, many, many other things, and I certainly don't understand this Christ figure, and I certainly don't understand or believe the resurrection. And anybody with any sense ought to understand that that is actually impossible. And so to put your faith in such things is absolutely ridiculous. You know, woe are those unthinking people, and we intelligent people who would know better, because we can put our understanding and intelligence over God's Word, this Bible, and then we evaluate it by our own experiences. See, it happens. This happens every day with everybody out there. It happens in church a lot. So the conversation is still about truth and authority. So let's look at Jesus' view of authority. Last week we looked at Jesus' baptism. And we saw that the heavens were open, the Spirit descended, and the Father spoke more words. In those words he said, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Well, the crowds witnessed this baptism. And those crowds were evidently sizable. But they weren't the only people who took notice. No, Satan enters the picture and tests Jesus. So finally, we're ready. If you Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when, and when they were ended, he was hungry. You see, we see the humanity, the human side of Jesus in this. If you didn't eat for 40 days, you'd probably be hungry too. Some of you may be hungry now, and it hadn't been 40 hours. I could eat every 40 minutes. He hadn't eaten for 40 days, and he's hungry. Well, if I just said wilderness 40, you know that word association kind of game you can do. If I said wilderness and 40, we who've been through the book of Exodus probably quickly would think of that Exodus, that story we just talked about, about the splitting of the sea and Moses leading his people 40 years in the wilderness. This story echoes that story. So the first temptation has to do with this fact that he's hungry. has to do with the body. The, it's, John in 1 John describes the, the kind of way the devil works at you as the lust of the, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The devil's not very creative because he's been at this for a while. This is what he does to Jesus. Verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If, if, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. There's a quote from Deuteronomy. And of course, Jesus was hungry. 
this could have tempted him as the apple or the fruit tempted Eve. The second temptation was the lust of the eyes. So what, what was tempting to the body, this may be tempting more to the soul. Verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So he shows him with the eyes, and he tries to divert his attention and his worship. And he wants him to worship him. Satan wants Jesus to worship him. So Jesus answers. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He quoted out of Deuteronomy. The third temptation is connected to the pride of life. This is connected to his, the spirit. What kind of spirit does he have? Verse 9 says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Wait, that's what Jesus said it is written. Now the devil is tempting Jesus, and he's saying, For it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 12, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What what was going on here with the devil quoting the scripture? If you'll remember... He quoted scripture when he tempted Eve. And of course, he doesn't really use scripture rightly. He takes it out of context and messes with it to drive home his point. This happens frequently. So it's a wrong use of scripture. Verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. So we're not seeing the fulfillment of that Genesis 3.15 where in the curse there's a promise of a deliverer who is going to thump the head of Satan or the serpent. We're seeing something of a beginning of that, but we're not seeing the end of that yet. Jesus, when he quoted, he quoted too also again, from Deuteronomy. This is no happenstance. This is, he's quoting from Deuteronomy because this is where Moses was instructing the Israelites. This passage, there are so many things that we could learn. We could, we could preach on this for three weeks or more. But we truncate all this, and we do recognize that the, 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 it's like a repeat of the scene or scenes that happened in Israel. So there's this repetition with this better Israel, the true Israel. So all Israel, this nation of people, God's chosen people, points forward to this person. The Israelites, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, 
they faced each kind of test as Jesus just faced. And they failed in each test. But Jesus, being the true Israel, he fulfills the tests completely and does not fail. He succeeds where they failed. Those 40 years really do correspond to the 40 days. The wilderness really does correspond to the wilderness. The temptations correspond to the temptations. He has proved that he is faithful in overcoming the temptations. The devil, in this this story, wanted Jesus to prove that he really was the Son of God. It appears that he didn't believe he was the Son of God. Because he kept saying, he said at least twice in these three things that he tempted him with, in these three opportunities for Jesus to prove himself, he said, if you are the Son of God, how, how could he know? How could he know for sure that this Jesus was the Christ? That this Jesus really was God's Son? The question that the devil was asking is about truth and authority. He gave Jesus three opportunities to prove himself according to his own standards. This, how often do we ourselves, and, and, and there, are, there, are things, you know, there are things like laying the fleece out and seeing if, okay, Lord, if, if this is from you, make that thing wet or dry or however that story went. But he's going to lay the fleece out. There's, there's, there, are these, there are some of these things that are, are legitimate. But there are other things where there's just kind of a testing of the Lord because we want the Lord to jump through the hoops. You, I, just any, whatever, all kinds, of, any television show that wants to reference the Lord, a lot of times will do it in this way. Okay, if, if you're real, then do this. That's what the devil was doing in this whole scene. If you are God, if you are the Son of God, do this, this thing that I suggested you do. But Jesus didn't compromise his mission. He turned down the devil's, he, he turned the devil's attention to God and what God the Father had said in his word. Could Jesus have turned those stones into bread? Sure. Could Jesus have survived throwing himself down from the pinnacle and and, and, and succeeded somehow, and, and so that he wouldn't have created any, any sort of bodily harm. Sure, he, he could have done that. But that wasn't God's plan. This is what the devil came up with. He knew, he knew that the devil wouldn't be satisfied even if he gave him a miraculous um, exhibition of his powers. The, the devil had seen all those things we've talked about, the, the devil had seen God work in miraculous ways numerous times. He didn't believe yet. This reminds me of the rich man and Lazarus. And the, rich, the rich man is in Hades. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man is experiencing pain. It's in the midst of his experiencing pain because of this eternal judgment that we don't really want to believe exists. He's beginning to experience. And he's like, if you could just dip your finger in some water and touch my tongue. He's parched. If I could just go back and tell 
or you go back and tell my brothers. What good would that do? If they didn't believe Moses, they didn't believe the prophets, if they didn't believe what was said, why would they even believe, Jesus says, if someone were raised from the dead to go back and tell them? You see, it doesn't make sense. In, their, in the way they view the world and what they have submitted their lives to, this cannot make any sense. It's not compatible with what they understand, with what they believe. But the devil's problem here in this story is the same as anyone who will not bow the knee to Jesus. It is that the devil himself, those people who will not bow their knee to Jesus, all have the same issue, and it's that they will not believe what God has said. They will not believe what God has said. The devil will not believe what God has said. For this story starts after the baptism, where God spoke. And we covered that last week, and we talked about how it must have been audible, and other people must have been able to hear. And then we see that in John's Gospel that John the Baptist says, I saw the heavens open. I heard the words. So it appears that it was audible and it was, and it was visible to everybody. So the, the, the evil one hears God's word, but he did not believe it. You remember when the serpent came into the garden. And he says, did God actually say? How many think that the devil's in the garden approaching at this particular time for clarification on what God said? Help me out. Did God really say this? He's not looking for clarification at all. He is raising questions that undermine the authority of God's word. He's raising questions that will draw Eve's attention and therefore Adam's, to stray from God's word and lean on their own understanding. Did God actually say? And then he quotes some scripture. He misuses scripture. This is in chapter 3 of Genesis. This is how the story starts. And it ends in the same way. God tempting people by misusing God's word because he doesn't really believe God's word. And if he could convince you to doubt it, then he could, he could convince you to disobey it. He could convince you that God is not who he says he is. And he's doing the same thing here with Jesus. But what about Jesus? How did he respond to the devil? He, he, even when he was hungry, because God said, He knew that his life was not defined by what he ate. Because what God had said, Jesus knew his life was not defined by what he ate. So even being tempted while he's hungry, he clung to the spiritual food of the word of the Lord and not this temptation to trade a birthright for a bowl of porridge. He understood that he was defined by the very word of God. If you want to talk about somebody who could trust their own experience or their own thinking, surely it was God in the flesh, this man 
this God-man, Jesus, he would have been a, the perfect empiricist or rationalist. You know, when one of the, one of the faults with that, those views is they come from inside of us, which that's where, that's where all of our evil comes from, according to what Jesus says, according to what James says. The list goes on and on. Paul talks about it. It's inside of us is what's bad. What comes out is coming from the bad that's inside of us. So because of the fall from Genesis 3, we all are tainted by sin. That's why we can't be perfect empiricists. We can't base truth on our experiences because we can't even interpret our experiences rightly. As much as we know, and some of you are really smart, I have a couple of gifts and that's really just not in there for me. But some of you, I know, are very smart. But even in the most intelligent among us, because of the limitations that we have in our humanness, as well as the effects of the fall in you, we can't be perfect rationalists. But Jesus could have been. If he wanted to trust himself and his opinion, he surely had the right to. But he didn't. He trusted God's word. He submitted himself... To God's word. So the question for us is who do you trust? Do you trust your own experience or knowledge to guide you into all truth? Can you truly and rightly judge all that you need to understand for this life and the one to come? Can you rightly judge those things? Is your ultimate authority your inner self? Or do you trust every word that comes from the mouth of God? How will you answer the bully on the playground when he says to you, who says so? Who says so? When the bully on the playground says to you, who says so? Will you look inwardly to your own emotions or your thinking ability? Or will you put your faith in the very word of God? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray.